This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Shouldn't you be at work? And Love. Oh, and Love, he's got a real chance now. Peter and Love. John Walk will take the penalty. Up goes Dion Dublin. Panister and Bruce in the queue again. Bruce scores! Goal left! Hit left! Hit left over the top! Now! Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? We are back. I'm Chris Gold. Joining me, as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And a man who would have on the back of his shirt the words, Michael. It's Michael Marden. Hello. Inspired by Steve Harkness, of course. Yes. Steve, as we'll call him. Steve. I think (laughs) forevermore on this episode, we should just call him Steve. Uh, Not on this episode, on this... How often are we going to mention I it? I was just going to say, it's never going to happen. never going to come up ever again after this. <laughs> How often do you think Steve Harkness has been mentioned on other podcasts except this? I mean, unless it's specifically a podcast about the clubs he played for, I'd say yeah. never. Do you think he's been mentioned in any podcast that isn't primarily a football podcast? <laughs> Considering how many podcasts there are in the world, all I'm looking for is one passing mention of Steve Harkness. Yeah. Oh, actually, I was on um, the Louis Theroux episode of Alan Buxton. He mentioned him. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be honest. Um, If you saw in the BBC Two listings, Louis Theroux meets Steve Harkness, would you be more or less likely to watch it than (laughs) if it was one of those ones where it's like Louis Theroux meets crack addicts in Baltimore? I'd be 100% up for it. Not just because of the 90s connection, but also because you would know... The fact that it is someone that sort of low-key and low-status, there's going to be some absolute dynamite in there. Because otherwise, (laughs) why the fuck are they booking him and why are they putting it out? I've got a question, right? If I told you that tomorrow Steve Harkness was definitely going to be on a daytime TV show, what would your bet be for what TV show he'd turn up on? (laughs) Well, he obviously, he probably knows Dion Dublin. (laughs) (laughs) My money would be on... um, can't pay, we'll take it away. One of those bailiff programs. <laughs> Either be as a bailiff now, or he's having stuff taken off him. So I say this as someone who this week has agreed to do a daytime TV show because 
I love it so much. And I got the email and I was like, uh, it was a classic sent on from my agent who was thinking I was just going to like, was like, any interest? Question mark is the only thing. And I was like, yeah, this is my absolute <laughs> dream. <laughs> <laughs> what? Hang on. See, can we guess it? I, well, no, because I don't want to say it, but I, I can oh. say it and you could beep it out. Okay. okay. I thought it would be something in that world. I absolutely cannot wait. <laughs> so excited. Uh, anyway, Chris, have you got any 90s o'clock news? Yes, I have. Let's go. From the headquarters of ITN, News at 10, with Chris Scum. More on Yuri Geller's hold over Gary McAllister. And how Steve Frogger met his wife. Okay, look, let's cut to the chase. But I've got even more gossip on um, Yuri Geller moving the ball yeah. at Euro 96, as Gary McAllister stood up to take uh, that famous penalty, which he, of course, missed. Yeah. So I want to thank Louis Tisdale for sending this one in. He sent in um, Darren Anderson's recent appearance on Graham Hunter's fantastic podcast, The Big Interview. Yes. And eight minutes 40 in to this chat with Darren Anderton, Graham Hunter goes on to tell listeners about this insane hold that Yuri Geller has over Gary McAllister. Like, not only do I now think, yes, there's a chance he moved the ball, but also I think he psychologically destroyed him. Oh, my God. There's a penalty awarded. Gary, you thought would be a, a 9 out of 10, 8 out of 10 finisher from 11 metres out. David Seaman, top class, might save it, but clearly at a time, you can see it, it does roll. Gary has said that prior to the tournament, uh, Yuri Geller had said he put crystals all over the place. When we were interviewing Gary for the big interview, Yuri Geller phoned him during the interview. Literally, we're in Leeds as he's describing what happened. Now, that is spooky. But you're on the pitch. So... So, Yuri Geller had told Gary McAllister that summer prior to Euro 96 that he was going to, like, put crystals all over the place to make England play well is kind of the insinuation there. But what's more, when Gary McAllister's then interviewed about that incident years later, Yuri Geller calls him. Like, Yuri Geller has a, a sixth sense. Like, he could telepathically tell that Gary McAllister was talking about him and rang him. That is... No, I just don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'd say what would be more likely, and I'm not even saying this, is that Gary McAllister, I'm not saying this, but I'm saying there is, this is a theory, has missed an important penalty that would, for other players, would have defined their career. Is there an argument that Gary McAllister missing that penalty has got somewhat lost behind the Uri Geller mythology? And actually, it is of Gary McAllister's benefit to continue to push the Yuri Geller story to take the heat off himself. <laughs> wow. Whoa. What do you make of that? You've just dug out a whole new dimension to this story. I like Actually, it. Actually, yeah, I'm on Gary board. McAllister finds it useful. I'm on board. Yeah, Gary McAllister is in league I mean, that, with Yuri Geller now because it is a benefit to both of them. <laughs> To say that Yuri Geller yeah. was responsible for that penalty being missed. I'd, I'd like to add another layer to this. And I don't know that Gary McAllister's done this. I'm not saying he has done it. I'm not saying he's not. But I'm going to relate this to a little story in my life, a little trick that I once pulled when uh, 
I was there was a, a girl who I was um, had a crush on, and we were friends. So one of the ways that I sort of tested whether she was interested or not was that uh, I changed one of the contacts in my phone to the name of uh, another girl that she knew that I worked with who she knew liked me and was interested. And I, I when I was having a drink with her one time, I left my phone on the table. Oh, yes. And I had, I had texted my sister and said, don't ask any questions. In five minutes, just send me a text. And then after four and a half minutes, I made my excuses, went to the toilet. And then when I came back, obviously, the text within oh, her eyeliner had come up. And it was a oh, way to gauge like, whether she was jealous or not. And her response to it would tell well, me. Do you know, there's a similar move that I think that many of us have pulled, right? Which is, I think that's, I, I think that is a canny move, Michael. I, I think that's borderline playing games. But I think, would you, would it be fair to say we've all done the one when you're, say, courting someone or you're just kind of, um, of mistakenly sending them a text that, you claim was for someone else that kind of yeah. gives a, uh, a little bit exciting view yeah. of your else of your other life. Yeah. That, have you done that? Yeah. That, yeah, absolutely. Have you done that one, Skull? I mean, pro- I can't remember, but it's almost certainly at some point. It's a classic, isn't what it? I, what I'm suggesting is that perhaps Gary McAllister has changed either his sister or someone yeah. else's number in his phone and said to them, don't ask any questions in 15 <laughs> minutes. Just call me. Put on an Israeli accent. <laughs> <laughs> and just, so, just bang some cutlery in the background. <laughs> so did, sorry, did, did Graham Hunter say this was for another one of his podcasts? Yeah. While he was interviewing Gary McAllister about Yuri Geller doing that, Yuri Geller called. Yeah. But Chris, I'm not saying that you, the man behind the 80s o'clock news, isn't a good journalist. But surely, surely to God, you should have found that that interview. That interview is, exists, right? Oh, what? Did the Gary McAllister? There'll be a Gary McAllister episode. Look, it's really busy in the news desk at the moment. We're short on staff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our best men are on the Steve Froggart story. <laughs> it's our Watergate. We're just about to crack the Steve Froggart case. Cut us some slack. If anyone can do our job for us, could you find that clip? Have you got anything on this Steve Froggart thing, though, Skull? I have, but uh, sadly, we're not, I've not got the time to cover it this week. But oh, okay. we'll find the time. We'll find the time. All right, well, we haven't got time for that. Shall we move on to the uh, electronic post bag? Yeah. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the electronic post bag. You've got mail. This is from Daniel Atkinson. Hi, big fan of the show. Proud XJ8 Patreon member. Thank you very much, Daniel. Come on, guys. Patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin. I've discovered something more crazy than the Oldham fact. Sorry, it's not 90s, but a quarterfinal game in the 1965 Coppa Italia between Bologna and Juventus finished nil-nil and went to penalties. Uh, I don't know why, but the same player from Bologna took all five spot kicks. What? (laughs) Wow. Marino Pirani. To make it crazier, he missed three of his five. (laughs) (laughs) What? What? I wonder what order he missed them in. If you missed the first. Because you know when a player takes a penalty in the normal time and then it comes to the shootout? I always feel... 
it's a weird situation, isn't it? That there's so there's so many mind games going on that time. Once once a player's stated what they're going to do by doing their first penalty, the second one's so much more fascinating in a way. Yeah. And I think it's almost the goalie's duty to go the same way than be beaten by a penalty that goes the same way twice. Yeah, I agree. I think you've got no expectation really to save it as a keeper, but it's that sort of fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice type thing. I'd absolutely be going directly where they put it. And I'd be hoping they put it somewhere like top left corner so the save would be absolutely outrageous if you did make it. So, have you got this website up? I'm looking at it now. So, if I'm not very good at Italian. Well, I'm not, I can't speak Italian. But if you look at Sequenza Rigori, so that's yeah, the that's penalties. the sequence of the penalties. And Parato must mean missed. So, Combin of Juventus steps up and misses. Parani of Bologna steps up and misses. Stacchini of Juventus steps up and misses. Parani of Bologna steps up and scores. Menkele Juventus scores. Parani scores. So it is Pirani, it's the whole way. Would you, if that was allowed now, and you were the England manager, would you get Harry Kane to take all five of your penalties? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you'd rather Harry Kane, you know, you'd rather Alan Shearer than Gareth Southgate, obviously. Yeah. But by penalty four and five, the I think the weight of psychological pressure <laughs> that's building on both player and keeper, I think I'd rather have the best penalty taker take all five. Would you? Yeah, I think so. Really? What about like like three penalty takers? So you go like Shearer, Sheringham, Gascoigne, Shearer, Sheringham, something like that. I think I'd rather all or nothing. I think for the sort of theatre of it, I'd want to see that narrative and that kind of arc play out with just one person, or otherwise I'd want five different ones. What about you, Scar? I think for those reasons that we touched on there, you wouldn't want a guy missing a penalty and then having to step up and take another one. It's always weird, isn't it? Like, uh, have you ever seen it in football where, like, uh, a, f- a striker will take a penalty, it might be saved, but then the referee will go, no, you need to retake it. The, ref- the goalkeeper was off his line. Like, that intensity of, like, I've got another chance now having just missed a penalty. That times five would be terrible, surely. I always think in those instances, the striker, it always feels like the striker is far more likely to score that second one if, if he's been yeah. asked to retake it after missing the first. Yeah. What would be quite interesting would be if you could choose as you went along rather than you were... So you were trying to play like you were like, oh, I was going to have Alan Shearer take all five. I'm going to have to pull him after two. Would it be quite exciting if if all 10 of your players stood around the D and then... The goalie didn't know which one of them was going to run out. They all charge in at the same time. And at, and at some point, they sort of, they peel off. Yeah, That's the sort of thing they were tried in the MLS in the 90s. Yeah, really oh, my is. God. Do you remember when they tried the... Um, the dribbling dribble from the halfway line? Dribbling from yeah. the halfway line. Yeah, that was They weird, used to do that on it? Masters football as well. I used to love Masters football. But they would, um, if, it, if a match was tied, I'm sure they would dribble from the halfway line rather than have penalties. I remember it being thrown around as a more fair way than penalties because I suppose it relied on a greater level of skill. Yeah. Okay, this is from Stuart Dunn. Hi, guys. Just thought I'd bring an oddity to your attention. I was going through my old football cards and stickers recently and found something I'd completely forgotten from the USA 94 cards made by Upper Deck. I love those cards. Oh, man, alive. What a great weekend. 
They're, I mean that. Do you know what I mean? I don't think I know these. So I love no, those. neither do I, but uh, they look amazing. I was obsessed with those. Well, do you remember the postcard from Pasadena? Uh, so that was 10 cards for players who wouldn't be at the World Cup. So uh, you had Rude Hullet, who presumably had fallen out with the Dutch manager or something. Brian Laudrup, Ali McCoist, Peter Schmeichel. I will leave that there, that Peter Schmeichel. However, although although you will see his picture is him clutching for a high ball that's slightly out of reach, <laughs> which is not my doing. So, Chris, what I want you to do is just describe the pictures they've used for the 10 players. So that's Brian Laudrop. Looking up at like the upper tier of a stand with what appears to be a sweatshirt like cobbled around his neck, after, looking after really confused. Yeah, after Fleming Paulson, I think that is looking looking like he's playing a like a, a misplaced pass. I would yeah. describe that. Peter Schmeichel, <laughs> like flapping at a ball that's going over his head. I'm not even joking. <laughs> Confidently clearing a high ball from his area. I'd say. <laughs> Come on. Okay, bottom left, Ali McCoist looking hungover, running around in a Scotland yeah. shirt. Right, some you uh, some guy I can't recognise who's Uruguay, I think. It looks like a PE, like a like he's playing PE in high school. I don't yeah. know. Ruben Sosa, then bottom right, um, covered in sweat, like playing unbelievable. Game, playing game, playing a game. Uh, Paulo Futre, that is the Portuguese. God, he looks skinny there, doesn't he? It makes me realise how fat he was by the time he came to West Ham. Uh, just kicking but the ball, kicking the ball. Rude Hullet. looking lithe, playing a game. Yeah. Okay, let's get to the final two. Paul Gascoigne. Uh, looking absolutely dejected in a Denmark shirt. Yeah. After a game, presumably. And now... (laughs) (laughs) Well... David Platt. On a beach, in shorts, giving it thumbs up next to a surfboard. (laughs) Stuck in the sand in a guy. Stuck in the sand. What has gone on there? Isn't that surreal? A bizarre choice of David Platt, but lovely to see Peter Schmeichel once again in his element flapping at a ball that's going over his head. We will put those on our Instagram. It's, it's at Quickly Kevin. If you do want to follow us, we'll put them on our Instagram and our Twitter um, because they are absolutely uh, phenomenal. Um, thank you very much uh, to Stuart Dan for them. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at QuicklyKevin and sign up to the mailing list at QuicklyKevin.com. Now, a bit of news for listeners. Um, Before we have discussed the new piece of merch for Patreon listeners, uh, we have decided to do something much more exciting. We will be doing three bits of Patreon merch in one big summer send-out. That's right, we thought... It's a big summer. It's the end of the lockdown. Let's send out three bits of merch at once in one package. That means that if you sign up to Patreon uh, now, uh, you will still be eligible for the three pieces of QK merch, Summer Spectacular 2021. That's www.patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin. Also coming this Euros for Patreon members, a very exciting tournament organised by Mr. Michael Marden. Yes, so uh, off the back of the success of our uh, Chapman 9798 Zoom shows, we have decided to recreate the high watermark of English football in the 90s 
Euro 96 on Championship Manager 97-98. So we're going to play out the whole tournament with the squads from that tournament in the group matches as they were, and then the knockouts will play out, you know, depending on who goes through. But here's the exciting thing. We are going to play it out with eight members of QK Royalty, including myself, Josh and Chris. But also we're giving eight patreon listeners the chance to take part in that tournament so if you want to face off against other qk fans and qk guests from past and present you need to be a patreon member by the end of may to be eligible for the draw and you could be playing against us to try and win euro 96 on championship manager 97 98 i should say all of those games will be available to watch for all patreon members won't they Yes, they will. It is going to be a big event. We are going to put the matches out to the exact calendar that Euro 96 was played in that summer. So you'll get the group games as they were on every night during the summer. It's going to be an admin and logistical nightmare, but it's going to be a (laughs) hell of a lot of fun. Yes, if Euro 2021 isn't fun, then luckily Euro 96 will be happening again via the Quickly Kevin Patreon. That's www.patreon.com forward slash quickly kevin and that is available all level of patreon members will be entered into the draw to be the eight team managers sign up by the end of may to be eligible now we've interviewed some players that have got a lot of medals but man this is a player who has won a lot of leagues and who has played in a lot of international tournaments he, he, all the big moments. Trevor Stephen is there. Lots of World Cups, lots of top He's teams. Like Forrest Gump. <laughs> like Forrest Gump. <laughs> it, the 90s football, Forrest Gump, would be the life and times of Trevor Stephen. It Trevor Stephen be, on yeah. a park bench with a box of his medals. <laughs> <laughs> talking to some old lady who just doesn't believe him. Nine <laughs> titles for Rangers. <laughs> How many World Cups? <laughs> Uh, here he is. Uh, it is the 90s football Forest Cup. <laughs> Trevor Stephen. Today we are joined by perhaps the most decorated player we have ever interviewed. Two Division One titles, one FA Cup, one Cup Winners' Cup, seven Scottish Premier League titles, four charity shields, 36 England caps, including four major tournaments. And most excitingly, our first League winner is Trevor Stephen. Hello. Good evening. Good afternoon. How are you? Is, would you say those are, are those, is that an exact description um, of your career? Yeah, pretty pretty well. I think it's uh, yeah. There's a lot of winning in there, isn't there? When you look back at it, and it's great to look back. On. I obviously look back on that with a lot of pride. You know. Where are all those trophies? Have you got them all? Oh, I've got not trophies, but medals. I've got the medals. You know, but you know, like a lot of us who have won medals in football, they sit. It's a funny thing, you know, they sit in, in lofts and plastic bags and things like that. Uh, and that's no word of a lie. And mine are not in plastic bags in the loft anymore, but they were until recently. Uh, it's funny, you know, when you're a kid, you, you get your first medal when you're like six or seven. It's on the mantelpiece. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you win the Cup Winners' Cup and it's in the, in, in the loft. In the loft. Do you know what? Funny, I actually lost it for about three no years. No way. No. And then, and then I had my sofa cleaned. <laughs> You know, at home, and uh, and the cleaner said, "Oh, it's this. Um, is that yours? Oh, I get in there. She found it." We always ask our guests, 
Can you remember your shirt sponsors throughout your career? So we're looking for Burnley, Everton, Rangers, Marseille. How many of those shirt sponsors can you name? There wasn't one at Burnley. The first one was Hafnia, but again, that, that was at Everton. Yeah, yeah. And I, I tell you, none of us knew. We won the FA Cup final wearing Hafnia, and none of us knew what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it? Well, well I said, John, it never came up in conversation. Well, you don't know what Hafnia is. Are you kidding? No. <laughs> It's Danish ham. Is Danish it? ham? What? Yeah. What? Wow. How many extra Danish hams are getting sold off the back of your <laughs> FA Cup with? Well, not a lot. <laughs> what, what about Rangers? Do you remember? This is a classic 90s sponsor, this one. Um, no, McEwen's Lager. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, McEwen's Lager because Celtic had it as well. And yeah. We also had C.R. Smith's. C.R. Smith's was double glazing. <laughs> That's mad. <laughs> The two biggest biggest club in Scotland, and you're double glazing. Yeah, and I knew the I knew the guys at Seal Smiths very well. They were um, I got a free conservatory out with them once. <laughs> uh, that was that wasn't an offer. I did a promotion for them, and uh, I was actually having two conservatories on my house, and they gave me one for free. Uh, so, how many conservatories do you need, Trev? I didn't need any of them to be honest with you. <laughs> you know. And um, what about Marseille? Oh, Panasonic, Panasonic. What'd yeah. you get off them? Anything good? Nothing, nothing. Do you know that even the, even McEwen's Lager, you know, you weren't given like free lager for the year or anything. You had to be man of the match to get, you know, six glasses. Um, but no, no free beer. And Panasonic, no, no little stereo sets as it was back in the day. You know, tape recorders and things. Let's take you back to Burnley. It's where you started your career. So that's the third division in the early eighties. Yeah. What's it like in the third division in the early eighties? Like what kind of level of facilities? What's it like at Burnley when you start out? Oh, how long have we got? <laughs> I was going I was going to Burnley from the age of twelve, and it was the only club that I ever went to pre signing for them, right? And I'm from mm. northeast of England. I'm from Berwick-upon-Tweed on the Scottish border. But Burnley spotted me and a 12-year-old, and I went down there in my school holidays, basically. And I, I did well enough, obviously, for them to wish to sign me at 14 on the school board uh, apprenticeship um, contract. So I was still at school. At 16, I then joined Burnley, but they'd only recently been relegated from the second division, the championship as it is now. So this was new territory for the club because the club's got you know, rich in history. Uh, and, and Burnley is a, you know, back in the day, it was a, a cotton mill town. But to me, it was like a metropolis because I was coming from Little Berwick, you know. Yeah. So, you know, they had, they had things like roundabouts and uh, <laughs> um, traffic lights, you know, and I didn't have those in my hometown. <laughs> But on the footballing side, it was obviously joining at 16. I've got two years really to prove to the management that I can go to the next level in signing professional. Polishing boots, uh, setting out kit, cleaning kits, digging up even turf more. You know, at the end of a season, the apprentices would wait for 10 days once the season had finished and will be handed uh, seven or eight of us, handed forks. What, to get rid of the pitch? Yeah, we have to dig up from 18-yard box all the way down the 18-yard box. <laughs> that's, that's proper manual labour. It's like being in the gulag. <laughs> it's like slightly worse weather. 
the summer break was three months nearly, you know, for the players. It was huge. But the apprentices, you know, we, we did our thing. We hung around. We did what the club asked us. We would paint and decorate a bit. Um, and then dig the pitch up and then come back for the pre-season. Um, so I made my debut against Huddersfield, which was only really memorable because I came on for the last 10 minutes and my, my mum and dad and my brother had come down and driven all the way from, from Burnley to watch a midweek game uh, and, and with the hope that I was going to get on. And I got on, which was great. I, you know, I'm now, you know, albeit still an apprentice, made my first step. And uh, the only other thing memorable is I, I didn't touch the ball. Right? I, not, I, I didn't even have a, get a throw in. I was running around like a, a busy How long were you on for? 10 minutes. 10 minutes? Didn't yeah, touch yeah, the ball? Yeah. Never touched it. You know, there's <laughs> a real sense of disappointment I've got to say. <laughs> I bet. You know, you get on and, I, and they couldn't really, my mum and dad couldn't really say I did well. You know? <laughs> <laughs> didn't touch it. Obviously, the, the levels you've reached, did that feel like a potential thing that could happen or were you just happy to be a footballer? Uh, no, I, I didn't really have visions of, of, of anything uh, other than being the best player I could be. Mm. And, you know, I played for England schoolboys, right, at yeah. under-15s, you know. But, so coming from a village, not a village, a town, up in the northeast of England, to be picked for uh, amongst 16 boys uh, as a 15-year-old, I'd already come across and seen the level, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I was very shy and retiring and very self-conscious about not being a city boy. I was a, a small town boy. You didn't really, I didn't play much compared to football. Every sort of hurdle I was clearing was a massive surprise to me. The big move comes in 1983. £300,000 Howard Kendall paid for you to move from Burnley to Everton. That's crazy money in 83. Did you, did, was there a pressure that came with that for you? Yeah, yeah there definitely was once I, once I got there and I realised how big a football club Everton was. And Howard Kendall had watched me through that previous season where Burnley had actually got relegated. And we'd had a great season in the Cups. So I'd come, you know, we played Liverpool. Burnley played Liverpool in the Mill Cup semi-finals, home and away. And we still got, we got rele relegated from second division. We played in the quarterfinals of the FA Cup, uh, beaten by Sheffield Wednesday. But we had gone to, in the Mill Cup, we went to White Hart Lane um, to play Spurs in the quarter-final, we won 4-1 at White Hart Lane. It was crazy. They had Ardiles, Hoddle, Archibald, Garth Crooks, Clements. So we were a cup team. We were a rubbish league team. Yeah. And so John Bond <laughs> sold me to, to Everton. I met uh, Howard Kendall. So he said, come to Goodison the following day uh, with um, you know your agent or whatever. And of course, I didn't have an agent. <laughs> so... My girlfriend at the time, she worked at a hairdresser. She said, you know, you know Jack, my hairdresser, uh, boss, yeah. He knows Martin Edwards, the Man United chairman. Yeah. And I thought, oh, God, he knows Martin Edwards. I think I'll take Jack as my agent <laughs> to Everton. So we went to, we went to Goodison, and uh, I wanted to sign straight away. You know, I, I, I was on very, very small money, as you can imagine, at, at Burnley. And I was on small money when I signed for Everton, you know, but relatively. Hmm. A lot better than I was on at Burnley. What would you have been on at Burnley? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, yeah. £17.50 as an apprentice. Wow. Then my first professional contract was £120. Big beans. This is how football should be, right? I got £120 per week. £200 a win. Oh. Right? 
so there was that was really good because if you play two games in a week, that was you know you're 500 quid, and I was only 18, 19, and we we did well, we won the league. So I, you know I earned a little bit. Then at Everton, I I, I signed for 400 pounds a week at Everton. Did that feel like a lot of money to you then? Oh, massive, yeah, huge. I, I was so excited about the move. Um, I went on holiday with my girlfriend and her parents. And I was out running in the morning. I wanted to be my best for July the 5th, coming mm. back for, for training. And uh, so I wanted to be really spot on and fit and ready. So didn't I overdo the training on holiday in Mallorca? Uh, and I got dehydration. <laughs> so when I turned up for training, I was about six pounds on the weight. And you could blow me over. <laughs> like, like I was so light and I, I, I had to tell the staff, I'm actually massively on that weight because I've been ill for a week before I got here. And then they said, listen, don't worry. You know, and Howard said, it's okay. We're just going to build up anyway. And Howard loved to play or do his training with the football, uh, which, which I loved. What was, um, what was Howard Kendall like as a manager? He's quite a big character, wasn't he? He was a great man manager, had a great picture of what he wanted his team to look like. And of course, he was an ex-Evertonian player and had been a winner at Everton. So he knew what the standards were, you know, where the, where the bar was as far as being an, uh, an Everton first team player, you've got to be a winner. But he had to create that out of somewhere. Uh, and he brought me in, you know, as part of the cure. You know, I was going to be one of the, the, the players that turned this round. And I was only 19 and, uh, and, and he put me in first day of the season against Stoke City. Uh, and, and, and Howard was very vibrant, talked well, got people going, very much about the ball and training and, and, and you know, how, how we moved as a team. So it was a very driven coaching setup that we had. But Howard, I have to say, you know, in my own experience was, was really, really good. He put me in for the first 12 matches. One, I found it hard because we weren't playing well as a group. We were really struggling to... To, to win games. Uh, we lost the first one against Stoke City. You know, my confidence obviously was being challenged again. Eventually, Howard said uh, to me, he said, listen, it's not about you. It's about, I need to bring some more experience in. So he put Alan Irvin back into the first team uh, and, and took me out of the first team, took me out of the firing line uh, in about November, end of November uh, and to give me breathing space. So uh, we had to try and pull it together and he brought in Andy Gray, which was a, a, a huge moment uh, in the, the club, advancing to another level inside the dressing room. But I was then out of the team. And you went to the, you got to the FA Cup final that year. Yeah, I was brought back in, at, you know, a month to go in the season. Howard let me grow for that length of time. Then he brought me into, into back into the, the team. What's, what's FA Cup final day like? If you like, because that's must, that's such a huge thing in those times. That it must have been such an exciting experience. In those days, it was the be all and end all of one-off matches because it was televised. Remember playing in those yeah. days? You know that you didn't get weekly live television. You know, very few games were on TV. You had match of the day or you had uh, mm. the match on on a Sunday, uh, and so there was very little coverage actually. Um, so playing in the FA Cup final, which was covered from top to bottom by television, gave you the opportunity to go and 
you know, win an FA Cup winners medal at the age of 20. Four years earlier, three and a half years earlier, I was doing my GCSEs at school. And then you go, <laughs> you go to that level very, very quickly. And, and we end up winning it against, uh, against you know, John Barnes and, and Watford. You know, when John, John's about the same age as me. And uh, so he was, he was playing for them. But for us to win it 2-0 and to get Everton back onto, that, you know, onto the winner's podium was, was a huge stepping stone. And one of the big set pieces of NFA Cup final, especially in the mid-80s, was the FA Cup final single. You had Here We Go yeah. recorded at Abbey Road Studios. Yeah. I was going to ask what was that like, but I know Josh is obsessed with the fact that the team performed it on Wogan, but you weren't there. No, I wasn't. What's the, do you remember, why not? How do you miss Terry Wogan? Uh, I missed miss Wogan. I think I was on Top of the Pops, though. I think I did Top of the Pops. <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> It's a very unusual. It's so small. The top, top of the pop studios. I don't know where they were. Where, where are they? BBC. Well, well, there's probably fourteen of you in a dressing room. I imagine as well. That, that yeah. Help. Were you nervous with it? Oh, no, I, you know, it was just we shouldn't have been there. You know, we just shouldn't have been there. And I, I did, I did things with England as well. And uh, so, you know, I never had a number one with you know the, the World in Motion song. Yeah. But going back to the. Um, to the Everton songs, that was all part of it, wasn't it? The Wembley suit, going to the hotel, cameras around the hotel in the mornings, uh, and I'm taking it all in. I'm very, very nervous as well, obviously. And knowing that I'm playing and families coming down, 100,000 are going to be at Wembley. And we had Freddie Starr, who, who was our sort of entertainer. So what did Freddie Starr do? What was uh, his... He, you know, he did his... He woke us, woke us up, but he wasn't allowed to make any noise until 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning. And he was on the grass in front of the hotel. Uh, he was marching up and down on the grass shouting. Oh, wow. Things, you know, right, dressed in all of the different uniforms, you know, the, the German uniform and, uh, and, and various other ones that, that he, he would... Uh, we knew him from the television because he was a big, big Evertonian. And uh, he was hilarious. So we were hanging out the windows looking at him, think this is what it's all about. You know, this is what it's all about. This, this is what, is what you I do got into well, football. If final day, you know, you've got a surprise entertainer on the lawn. That's, that's it. Then you prepare yourself for, you know, the biggest day of your lives. Uh, and none of us had been to an FA Cup final before, you know, in that squad. So it was new to everybody. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, of course, Howard, um, Howard led the way with us. You know, he, he was... Uh, it was just amazing. And the old Wembley, right? The old Wembley and the 100,000 people, was, it was just phenomenal. And now Richardson. Whipping in a good cross. And shot. And a goal! His first cup tie goal of the season, and it comes at Wembley. Stephen. Looking in, quite a good cross there. Oh, Andy Gray, and he's given. It came out of Sherwood's hands, and Andy Gray has forced it home to put Everton two into the lead. And a victory for Everton in the FA Cup. There are the two goal scorers, Andy Gray and Graham Sharp. That was your first time in FA Cup final, but you were bent, went back there the next year. And it, this rivalry with Liverpool really emerges in the, in the mid-80s. Two of the best teams in the world in the same city. What was it like for you being a part of that rivalry? 
Well, we knew that if we we finished above Liverpool at, at that time, that we would win the league. It was who it was either Liverpool or whoever beat Liverpool, and, and it was us who was going to do that. So we got ourselves after that FA Cup final win. We had a brilliant season in '85, which probably goes down as the best season that uh, that Everton uh, history would, would show you. Um, we won the double, uh, and of course. Liverpool were always on our tail, but we beat them in the Charity Shield, which was a sign of things to come, you know? Would you see them around the city? Like, did you feel like they were part of the same social world? No, everybody lived out of the city. The, the majority of people lived out of the city, you know, either Southport or on, on the Wirral, and, and I lived. I couldn't afford to live in Southport, you know? And, <laughs> but we didn't see anybody. You know, you, you went to work, you went to train, you went home, you went to the supermarket, you went home, you had something to eat, you slept, you went to training. It was a routine, it was a job. I mean, you're doing the, the greatest thing in, in the world that's playing, playing football. But it, it, was, it was like that. And I was a young guy trying to make his, uh, his way in, in the game and make an impression. I, I was super dedicated, right? You know, I blinkered, absolutely blinkered as to the challenges that I had. You know, I was youngest in the dressing room, youngest. So I had the most challenges there. And I had to build confidence. Was there like a big... Because obviously in the 80s, it was a different culture. Would there be a big drinking culture with a team going out yeah. together? I've heard that Howard Kendall really encouraged that. That was his kind of way of getting the team together. Well, it's like, go on a night out. Yeah, but you were not forced to go. Right? You weren't forced to go. And, uh, you know, I would have a couple of beers, but the other lads who had been around a bit more, you know, I, you know the, the majority of the squad liked the beer. Howard loved his drink, you know, he loved his wine. That's just the way it was then. But for me, I was observing that, but I was looking to, I, you know, I can't get distracted in that. I've got to prove myself on the field first. So, uh, it, it, it could never affect what you're doing on the football field. You know, I never remember anybody in my career not being able to be selected because they were, they were affected by alcohol. So, and, and the other thing is, you know, have a drink, but make sure you win. You go from one really intense rivalry in the city of Liverpool to 1989, another intense rivalry in the city of Glasgow, transfer to Rangers, and there bringing you in is Graham Souness, yeah. one of the most intimidating men of the 90s. What were your first impressions? Uh, well, Graham, Graham was obviously a fantastic footballer, and, and what was happening at Rangers was phenomenal, And but there was also a reason, you know, there was the... Uh, uh, the European ban on the English clubs. And my contract finished with Everton in 89, and uh, I went to see Alex Ferguson. Uh, I was going to go to Man United, so I went to see him on the Monday. But Sir Alex hadn't won anything by then, and, and Everton was as good as side uh, under Colin Harvey as, as Man U were at that time. And uh, there was no European football, and, and when you see that Graeme Sinets had attracted Ray Wilkins, Terry Butcher, Chris Woods, Gary Stevens, who'd got left from Everton the previous year. Uh, I knew that Rangers wanted me because uh, Graham wasn't really subtle about how he tapped you up. You know, back in the day, he was... Uh, uh, so what would he do? Well, uh, well, he always had his journalist. There was Bob Harris from the Sunday Mirror. Uh, and, you know, I met Bob several times and, and, and talked to Bob a lot. But Bob would be his sort of go-between, and I'm sure it still goes on today. Um, but I remember it was after an Everton, an Everton game, right, literally right at the end of the season, and uh, 
Graeme Sinesse wanted to meet me after the game. I said, I can't meet you after the game. You know, I just can't. So we met down in Dark Alley, right? <laughs> You're a brave man for taking yeah, that meeting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and I was out in West Derby and, and Walter Smith was with him. As if it couldn't get intimidating enough. <laughs> yeah, you know, was, and Walter Smith down an alley. I don't know what I was supposed to say. I don't, you know, I'm at, I'm at Everton and, you know, I, I haven't made the decision as what I'm doing, but I'm going to stay at Everton. So we want you, we want you at Rangers, you know, we want you at Rangers. Like, so Alex Ferguson's interested in the PA until actually the season finished. Anyway, I chose to go to, to Scotland because all of the England players were there. You know, a lot of them were there. And the European football. And, you know, and, and the crowds were big. And they just won the league. Uh, so they were turning the, the tide against, against Celtic. So I, I went and honestly, I'm from the northeast of England. Um, my, I'm English, but my middle name's McGregor, you know, so I've got a Scottish roots. It was comfortable to go back up there in the sense geographically, and my family could come and watch. So I went, and, you know, Graham, Graham was brilliant. He, you can imagine how Graham would manage, you know, he wouldn't be telling you how to, uh, uh, how to play football. He would strut his stuff, you know, on the training pitch, strut his stuff <laughs> around the dressing room, sharpest dresser you've ever seen, you know, and, he, he was just class, you know. He, he did it that way. Well, he was player manager, was he at that time? Yeah, but he didn't. He didn't really play very much. Um, but I remember that first season, we'd won the league, uh, and he, he was a shocker, really. You know, he picks himself for the last game of the season because we're getting awarded the trophy. Right, we're going to give him <laughs> the trophy. So he, he picks himself as a sub, and he brings himself on with ten minutes to go. Right? <laughs> Who does that? Who does that? <laughs> and, um, so he brings himself on at home at Ibrox, 50,000 there, just literally waiting for uh, the season to, uh, to, to finalise and finish. And of course, we as players, we don't, we're not going to pass him the ball, are we? We're not. <laughs> <laughs> so the ball was being chipped over his head, it was being curved round him. <laughs> He'd be running to Terry Butcher. Give us it, give it short, give us it short. No, the ball was going out wide. <laughs> and he took it. He took it as a last, right, in the end. He did and when he got the ball eventually, there's a massive cheer from the crowd. <laughs> was he like in training, would he go like would he go in hard and was he still like Oh god, honestly, no, you know. Train as you play. And on Friday afternoons we used to have England and the rest of the world against Scotland. You know, with five sides, Richard Goff would be captain of uh, of Scotland, and Terry Butcher was captain of England and rest of the world. <laughs> right? And God, it was taken seriously, and you, you you were gutted when you went back in if you'd lost. And there were serious tackles going, and there were one or two injuries as well, and, and one or two little fights. You know, that would happen. And is that encouraged by Sunas? Like, come on! Yeah, of course, it was. Uh, yeah, so it was that kind of mentality, and, and, and of course, at Rangers we had to, we had to be better than Celtic, and um, we went on, you know, the run of, of nine in a row. When I joined, it was it was one in a row, and then uh, we won two. My first stint at Ibrox, and I went, uh, I left there, went abroad, came back, and I won another five. So not a bad haul. Was you, were you there when Mo Johnson transferred yeah. to Rangers? Yeah, I just joined. You see, right? Yeah, you know, when I joined, I joined. Uh, ranges for 1.525 million 
Um, and it went to tribunal, right, because I was out of contract. Remember that when it was just changing with the Bosman ruling coming yeah. in? Yeah. Mm. Hadn't come in quite yet, but players were no longer owned by the club beyond your contract. When your contract finished, a tribunal would be set up. So Livingston and I went uh, with Rangers. So I was sitting on the Rangers side of the table and Colin Harvey and, and the management, administrative management from Everton were on the other side. They came up with 1.525. The aware had just gone to Man United for 1.5 million, so they wanted to make it a bit more. In those situations, mm-hmm. are Rangers arguing that you're worth less and yeah. Everton are arguing that... Yeah, so Everton's arguing. You, like, Everton's argument, and, and Colin Harvey was making it, that Chris Waddle had gone to Marseille for 4.5 million and that I was the same player. You know, we both played for England, same type of level of player. But then it went to the committee decide, take half an hour to decide, you know, have a chat or a cup of tea and say, right, then we're going to, we're going to say it's this much. Because uh, Neil Webb had just gone for 1.5 on tribunal. Chris had gone abroad uh, where the tribunal system didn't count uh-huh. or, or wasn't relative. So th- that was it. 1.525 uh, million went to, went to Rangers for that. And then a few years later, and this is fascinating, you mentioned it there, the move to Marseille, five and a half million pounds, which is a hell of a lot of money in 1991. But there's very few players in the 90s who went abroad and were a big success. Maybe you could say David Platt, Paul Lynch, it was a thing Chris Waddle and yourself. So the it big was one. a thing to, to do in those days. That was what you were hoping to get. But I wasn't expecting to do that because I just signed a fight in the Christmas time. I was offered a new five-year contract by Rangers and I signed it. I was expecting to stay for five years. The whole thing changed because, uh, you know, Graeme Souness left. Um, so that was, and Walter Smith came in. Uh, we won the league, finished the season, won the league. And then we went to Italy on our pre-season training. And uh, Walter Smith had pulled me in um, at, after a training session and said, uh, the chairman's been on. Uh, we've had an offer for you. Listen, we know you've signed a new contract. We don't want you to leave, but it's such a big offer. We've got to, you've got to know about it. And it was, you know, nearly five million from Marseille. And, and so I was out in Italy. And I'm thinking, yeah, you've got Jean-Pierre Papin and you know, Chris Waddles there, you know, Didier Deschamps, and some you know, Abadi Pelli, who's African Player of the Year. Uh, some superb footballers, and they just played in the European Cup final hadn't they, against Red Star Belgrade. So it was a, a huge team. It was owned by Bernard Tapie, who owned Adidas. It was my big opportunity, and I was 27. Um, and so Walter told me that uh, someone's flying in from Marseille, and they're going to take you to meet uh, the management, you know, of, of Marseille. So I said, well, I've only got a tracksuit. I can't really go meet them like in a tracksuit. <laughs> so you got Jimmy Bell, the, the kit man of uh, Rangers to take me down into the town in, on the hills in, in Italy, um, in Tuscany. So I went and bought a suit. So I come back and bought a suit, very sort of Italian looking suit. And uh, <laughs> so then I said, well, right, I've got my suit. What happens next? I'm just waiting for a call. Uh, four days we were in Italy and no one called him, right? No one called him. So I went home with this suit, right? And nobody, we didn't, never had the meeting. 
got back to got back to Ibrox and back to normal training. And I, I said to Walter, I said, "What's happening?" He said, uh, "We're waiting for the call. We don't know if the deal's on or off." And he said to me, "Just keep your passport in your car or in your pocket and bring your passport every day, uh, just in case it happens." So I was going into pre-season training at, at Ibrox and uh, every day with my passport, <laughs> and I'd come in. I'd go home with my passport, take it in the next day, go home. And that was, nobody was saying anything to me. And I could see that August the 15th or 14th was, was nearing. And this looks like it's going out the window. Um, my, my agent at the time was Dennis Roach, who looked after Mark Hughes and uh, Mark Hately and people, people like that, some really good players. And he said, not heard anything. So it got to, it literally got to the eve of transfer window closing and I'd gone home uh, to from training and just thinking it was all over I got home my wife at the time had gone out in the afternoon shopping and I got a phone call when she was out and this was pre mobile phones by the way uh, and it, I was living in Edinburgh the phone call came in from my agent and he said the moves on this is three o'clock in the afternoon you've got to get to David Murray's office in Western Edinburgh in South Gyle You've got to go there, take your passport. I, I can't contact my wife. I'm going to have to go. So I go to Edinburgh Airport, get in one of the cubicles uh, at about five o'clock in the evening. I have to go to the office, but I have to get the passport photo. So, you know, those like 20 pence in those days where you could... So you're doing your own passport for a £5 passport million pound move. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I took those in my passport across to David Murray's office, got there about six o'clock. Uh, and I was speaking to David Murray and speaking to my agent, and the guys from Marseille arrived at about seven. They'd come in on a on a private jet. So I thought, okay, this looks like comfort that's going to happen, but my wife can't contact me, can't contact me. I don't know. She didn't know what I was doing. I then sit for a few hours with the um, with the management on either side of the table. Uh, my agent going back and forth, trying to get me the best deal. They just trying to do the best deal with Marseille. And at quarter to 12, they agreed a deal. So I sat there for five hours. Family didn't know where I was. <laughs> I had to take the decision that I was just going to sign for uh, Marseille. And I'll tell, her, I'll tell her when I get home. <laughs> so I get home at about quarter past 12, half past 12. And that was the first thing I, I told her. I said, I'm going to Marseille tomorrow. I've just signed for them. <laughs> but to, to sign for them for three years. So the next... The next day, I was off to Marseille, and Chris Waddle met me at uh, at uh, Marignan, the airport in Marseille. What were you mates with Chris Waddle at that point? So he, he kind of yeah, I was, I was, I was, you know, he's a Geordie, isn't he? And uh, I was playing on the England team with him, you know, at that time. So but Chris had actually come out the England team, and neither of us were in the bizarrely were in the England squad, and um, we were the two most expensive players in. In England, you know. <laughs> so let's let's go on to England. You started. You were first called up by Bobby Robson in 1985. What was he an amazing guy to work for, Bobby Robson? What was it like? Uh, uh, amazing, um, amazing experience. Of course, you don't know what to expect, you know, of, a, of an England manager, do you? Because you've never you've never done it before. So I, I always found that I was surprised uh, the higher I I sort of went up in football. This is back in the day. You know, the better the players, the less the manager was doing. Oh, really? Right. Because they don't have to teach you 
anything. Yeah. They just put the structure of the team, don't they, when you think about it. Um, at, at, at those kind of levels, it's more about they expect that you can shoot, cross, run, tackle. That's why he's picked you. It's only what you know when you look at sometimes teams are picked and players are playing out of position. That always baffles me. Uh, but Bobby Robson picked me uh, in 1985. I, I got a phone call from Howard Kendall. I've, I've, I'll just tell you the story because you know, it, it kind of tells you a lot about Bobby Robson. I, mean, I got a phone call after a game in sort of March, I think it was, 1985. And I wasn't in the squad originally at all. I'd never been in the squad. And I thought I was never near a squad, to be honest. I'd played the under-21s. Uh, and then uh, Bobby... Uh, Howard Kendall actually rang me and told me Bobby Robson was going to call me, uh, uh, which you know, I nearly fainted when I this was at home and couldn't believe it when I put the phone down. And then the phone rang five minutes later and it was Bobby Robson, who was telling me I'm going to be picked up the following day. I'm coming into the squad because of Brian Robson's done, done himself an injury. So I came into the squad and it was Northern Ireland away in the World Cup uh, qualifier uh, in Windsor Park. And... Uh, I played in the game. It was, uh, you know, quite straight amazing. in the team. Yeah, he put me straight in. You know, when I first arrived in, in uh, Northern Ireland, uh, Ray Wilkins, who took over the captaincy for that particular game, he he met me at the front door of the hotel with Bobby Robson, and you know, I'm, I'm so completely nervous. It was like when I was when I was joining Everton first and foremost. I was, I felt I don't deserve to be here. What am I doing here? And the, if I'm going to be there, I'm only going to be a you know, a filler to the squad. I'll maybe learn one or two things. I was told the following day, Bobby came to my room and knocked on my door and said, I'm going to play you. He said, I'm going to play you, son. And he said, I'm going to play you. I said, oh, fantastic. <laughs> I'll get on the phone to the family and, uh, and, and then we, we go to Windsor Park and we play the game. It was a rubbish game. It was a terrible game. It was raining like mad, and we won one nil. But I always remember before um, going out, and it was always an amazing, vivid memory to me as we walked down the corridor. And at the end of the corridor, there was a big green door, and above the green door, it said England. And I'm walking down there to this dressing room, and I've got Terry Butcher in front of me, and Peter Shilton's in front of him, and Ray Wilkins is here. Down the, you know, I'm going, well, this is amazing. Trevor Francis was there, Viv Anderson, like legendary players and yeah. little old me. <laughs> and uh, we got into the dressing room and prepared for the game. And, you know, they didn't have names on shirts in those days, you know, but I was going to be playing number seven and Brian's number as it was in the day, Brian Robson's number. And uh, as the game got nearer and Terry Butcher got louder and these caged lions and all of that, it was. I was sitting there relatively quietly trying to get into my zone, keep in my zone and think about what I can do and how I can get through this and not let anybody down and not be an embarrassment to myself and my family and, uh, and you, know, you know, make the moment count, you know. And Bobby Robson came over to me and he, he was very, very good. And all he said to me, he said, you deserve to be here. Don't worry about anything. The first thing you do, do it well and the rest will take care of itself. And that's all he said to me in the whole hour before the game. And did you, know? you do the first thing well? Yeah, throw in. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I mean, the game was, and the rest, the rest was, was fine, you know, and um, I, must, I did well enough to be picked for the next squad. 
and then the next squad and the next squad and all of a sudden I'm on tour in 85 uh, with Bobby and uh, his management style was enthusiasm personified you know and slightly eccentric so in love with the game yeah that you couldn't help but just be immersed in it along with him you know he was so thrilled did the whole squad like just love him like did you all kind of follow him yeah you know the, the, the mickey behind his back the mickey was taken out of him left right and center yeah <laughs> uh, you know but you know we, we had full respect for him as well uh you know when when the moment was there when he was picking the team when he was doing his training sessions you know when he was getting the players names wrong you know <laughs> it, it was just amazing you know we were training in bishop abbey and you know and i I'd only been in a couple of squads, but Brian was Brian Robson was back in, and we were doing this sort of midfield to wide to crossing to scoring kind of exercise. And uh, Brian Robson was in the middle of the field, and he was spraying the ball out to me, and I was crossing, going down the line, crossing the ball, and Mark Haley was heading the ball in. Just an exercise for ten or fifteen minutes, and Bobby kept saying to Brian. Bobby, right? He kept calling Brian Bobby, right? So, Bobby, Bobby, <laughs> knock the ball out, knock the ball out, knock the ball out to Gary. Gary, you get it, knock that, go down the line, knock it to the far horse, and big Tony's going to put it in. <laughs> right? So, but he kept repeating it, right? Everybody's in stitches. But then to, to got to the point where Brian had to go and say, Gaffer, you're Bobby, I'm Brian. <laughs> right? And I'm going, and I'm Trevor. That's Gary, Gary Stevens, Trevor Stevens. <laughs> and Mark Haley's going, I'm Mark, not Tony. Tony was his dad. <laughs> you know, it, was, um, it was just typical of uh, what he was like. But his, his ability to keep the mood right um, was, was his strength. And uh, he, he had a brilliant career in the end as England manager. You know, and I went, to, I went to two World Cups with him, you know, and won European Championship in 88. I went to 92 with Graham Taylor. Uh, the European Championships, I, I, I care to forget, but the World Cups, I never forget. Yeah, well, let's talk about the first one of those World Cups, Mexico 1986, and the moment that every England fan yeah. knows all too well, Diego Maradona's Hand of God. Yeah. I wanted your opinion on this. Peter Shilton recently said that he still hasn't forgiven Maradona for that. Have you got forgiveness in your heart, Trevor? Uh, yeah, I don't really think about it too much, but I know, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, what a, what a big, what a, what a big moment that was, you know, when you think of it, you know, I'm, I'm 57 now, and my life would have been different, you know, if we'd gone through and won the World Cup there, I don't think we were good enough, actually, to win the World Cup in, in uh, 86, but we could have easily won that game without Maradona, you know, the second goal followed the first goal, with the first goal was cheating. Yeah. Uh, and they were trying to put a game together, TV uh, producing company was trying to put a game together between England and Argentina revisited, 86. Uh, and uh, us as you know, veteran players, retired players, uh, and most of us said, yeah, let bygones be bygones, you know, we'll get on with it, we'll have a, a good, good time, we'll get a game together, all these old players and Maradona. Terry Butcher wouldn't play. He wouldn't, wouldn't he just play. wouldn't play, you know. So um, that... That mood got around, and we came for all sorts. Said, "No, I don't really want to play in that." So we got to half time. There was nothing in the game, nothing in yeah. the game whatsoever. The pitches were pretty poor, and it was Mexico City, um, 
Azteca Stadium, 120,000 people, the world watching, the added dimension of you've got the world's best footballer in Maradona and you've got the sort of aftermath of the animosity from the Falklands War. Yeah. Uh, and you had all of these contributing factors. And we kicked off at 12 o'clock midday in Mexico City at altitude. So oh. uh, oh, the, the heat, the sun was above our heads. Uh, and when you look at it, you see the uh, the shadow of this big sort of spaceship in the middle of the of the pitch, which is actually all of the the speakers and things that they have for the uh, the stadium were all on wires in the middle of the pitch. Bloody so we, we were running around under that. But we got to half time, we were still in it. We went into the dressing room. Uh, we were all sat on, uh, lying down on the floor with ice cold towels around us, trying to get our temperatures down, uh, to go back out and try and get over the line. You know, we knew there was nothing really between the teams, but keep Maradona out of the game, then we've got a, we've got a chance. Um, and then that, that incident, that moment happened with his handing the ball, punching the ball into the goal. Where I was on the field, he, he'd kind of come past me a little bit uh, and sort of ran past Glenn Hoddle after he released the ball as he was running towards the goal. So he'd gone way past me and, and he was heading in towards the, this is Maradona, he was heading in towards the penalty spot area. And, and Steve Hodge, you know, attempted to, clear the ball and it went up into the air. At that second, I'm thinking, here we go, Peter Shelton's coming, coming out. I'm now looking around me to see where the, the space is and see, trying to read where the ball is going to go from Peter's punch. And of course, the Peter's punch never arrived. Uh, I turned back and the ball was trickling off towards the goal and, and Peter's arms were up in the air and Maradona was starting to wheel away with the ball nestling in the net. Our players were going crazy. I wasn't quite sure why they were going crazy, but everybody was starting to, you know, point towards the hand and chasing the referee back towards the halfway line. But, you know, there was no VAR, there was no second look, there was no change of opinion or mind. Um, so we had to get on with it. But it changed the game because the second goal would never have happened if the first goal hadn't have happened. When, when he scored the second goal, did you think that fair play to him, that is amazing? Or were you... Oh, yeah, yeah, I didn't judge it in those terms at the time. Uh, but you could tell it was something special. But, you know, when you go behind in a game like that, the game was really tight. Our game went down 5% and we had to start to chase it. So we had to open a little bit and their game became uh, elevated by 5%. Mm. So we had that moment in the game where we were vulnerable, more vulnerable, and they were flying. They were 1-0 ahead and shouldn't have been. And that's when the, the, the goal came. What was it like in the dressing room afterwards? Were people livid or? But when when do you first when do you first know it's a handball? Were you was Peter Shilton talking about it immediately after? When did when did you first become aware? I think there was no television screens in, in the dressing room. The, um, you know, it was just the consensus of opinion was that we'd been cheated, and I think we would 
you know, the, the elder or the more experienced players in the squad were, and Bobby was saying, well, you know, what can we do? What can, you know, can we go and do something about this? No point in complaining, is there really? Because there is no U-turn possible at that moment, the game's over and we are going out. We are going back to our hotel, packing our bags and back off to England tomorrow. Uh, <sighs> and that is what happened. You know, we were back in the, in, in the UK, you know, 24 hours later. What was that plane journey home like? Was everyone just absolutely... Uh, well, we drowned our sorrows, to be honest with you. The, the big game for me, you know, personally in that, was the game in the, the qualifying, or you know, getting out of the group stage, which was against Poland, when Bobby had to change the team because of injuries. And uh, uh, where Boniek was their skipper, and we, we won 3-0 in Monterey, that was the, the, the big, memorable moment. And also the moment that kind of made... Gary Lineker really come strong on the international and world yeah. scene with his hat-trick. Yeah, we, you know, we were disappointed, hugely disappointed. Did we, did we feel that we let ourselves down? Not really because of the way that we went out, you know, the, the, the hand of God. And it's the, you know, it's a game that's still we're talking about it. Yeah. And its effect uh, on, on English football um, has been quite immense. You went, you went to two World Cups. We'll skip over Euro 88, I think. You know. Yeah, please do. <laughs> please do. <laughs> that second World Cup, 1990, I mean, we regard it as probably the greatest World Cup. And in that yeah. team, you, you've got a young Gaza. You went on to get to know Gaza with your, your second spell at Rangers. But what was that early Gaza like just before, you know, the global fame? Uh, the 1990 World Cup was, was phenomenal, you know, because Italy was the place to play, wasn't it? Uh, uh, everybody was watching Italian football, had the best players in the world in general. Uh, English football, I wasn't playing in England, I was playing at, at Glasgow Rangers uh, in 1990. Uh, but English football was still out of Europe. Italy was the place. So we, we got man, the selection of the squad first and foremost. It could have been David Rowcastle. It easily could have been David Rowcastle, but Bobby went for me in the end. You know, and how did you find that out? Was it a we were phone call uh, at the training session, Bisham Abbey, uh, where there was the twenty-eight players together, and um, you know David had been in and out. I'd been more out than in in the squad, and Bobby took a, a decision to take me, uh, and we found back found that out back at the hotel, and you know, and, and David and others had to leave the party oh, and go home, word. not go on. Can you imagine? Um, and I had, the, I had the other experience of Bobby coming to my room, because we all, after, after lunch, we all had to go to our rooms and wait. Oh, my word. Right? And are you rooming with someone at this point, or are you just sat on your own? Um, no, I was on my own. I was on my own. Oh. And uh, the door went, and he said, I'm taking you, son. Uh, so I think you, I think you'll do well with us. You've been before. You know what it's about. I can count on you. I can trust you. Oh, did you feel bad for David Rocas? Oh, like, do you think we could have quite easily gone because David was, was a super player and, and, and he'd done brilliantly at Arsenal. Slightly different to me. He was more tricky than me. I was more, I was more central to out, and he was more out to in. Mm. Do you know? As far as yeah. position is concerned. And uh, I got, I got the nod. So obviously, I was delighted to go. Um, Again, I went to this World Cup not being part of the first 11. You know, I, I was yeah. a squad member. You know, you always tell by the numbers on the shirts, can't you? <laughs> the, first, the first one, I was 17. Uh, yeah. And the second one, I was 20. 
So I was still in the World Cup, but I was being edged out, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> Subtly being edged out. <laughs> that was me off, off there to the World Cup. And, of course, we were all in Sardinia, and, and Gaza had booked his slot with the game against the Czech Republic um, was in the April, and Gaza was an enormous in that game. He was there. And uh, he was, without doubt, looking back on that tournament, a, just a shining light. And, uh, and for, for us as a squad of players, to be marooned in Sardinia with Gaza for a few <laughs> weeks, there was no escape. Uh, and it, was, it was amazing. You know, in, in the hotel, he was, he was just a lively character. There was me, Gaza, and uh, Steve Hodge were sort of pitched in together for a week uh, because the wives and girlfriends were uh, invited out by Bobby prior to the World Cup starting. And uh, my wife at the time was pregnant, so she hadn't travelled out to Sardinia for this week's holiday. Gaza was scared to death of girls and women. <laughs> uh, and, and I don't think Hodge had a girlfriend. I don't think he could get one. Um, so the three of us were stuck as the three stooges whilst you know at, at the pool in the afternoon yeah it would be the wives and girlfriends and the lads getting a bit of suntan before you know uh going for dinner uh and and we would join up as the three stooges for dinner and uh after a couple of days like hodgie used to get on a pedalo in the afternoon to take his book out just to get away from Gaza. <laughs> right? So he'd be peddling off into the Mediterranean so Gaza couldn't affect him. But I was quite happy with Gaza. Yeah. Uh, we, would, we would sit in reception and keep each other company, play tennis. Uh, and he would play tennis late at night. I think he, he had Chris Waddle up one night, he had me up one night. Uh, but it was mainly, mainly me. So it, it was great fun. Gaza, Gaza was hilarious to be with and what a, what a footballer, you know, the confidence that he had. And they say that with geniuses, don't they? Because he, he, was, he was without fear. Yeah. Know? And I think uh, to go to that level and not have an element of fear, it shows the difference between genius and great players, I suppose. Did you know what was going on back in the UK, like back in England, once the kind of Gazamania started and the excitement about the World Cup? Did that bleed into the camp in Italy or did you not realise you got home? Well, it started to feed its way in, but you kind of know what you're doing, you know, as you're progressing through through the tournament. And we had some amazing, amazing moments. You know, we had a number one. We had the world in motion, you know. We, oh, we yeah. were number one in the charts. Um, yeah, back on top of the pops. Yeah, the top of the pops thing. Well, we were out in Sardinia when it was number one. So, oh. um, Did you record that with New Order? Did you get to meet New Order and do stuff with them? Or? No, there was only guys who bothered to turn up because we, you know, there was a lot of, <laughs> there was a lot of uh, let's see, a sort of downward look at the England team or a negative yeah. look at the England team, uh, England team. Bobby said he was going to leave the England job. There was pressure on him in the press. The press were really difficult towards us. We hadn't been playing well. The social scene in England and the UK in general was really poor, minor strikes, you name it, it was all going off. And so the World Cup changed the mood. And it, there's no question that it was part responsible for the mood lightning in, in England and uh, people having something positive to focus on. Did you, when you were out there, so you, you get out there and the first game was a kind of draw against Ireland 
And then I think it was draw against Holland, in fact, wasn't it? The second game. Yeah. Yeah. Where Gaza was great in that game. And what's the kind of mood around the camp at that point? Do you think do you think we could is there a feeling we could go all the way? Or no, not not at that point. You know, again, we were in danger of um, elimination, weren't we? I didn't take mm. part in the first three games, injured for one of them, but I, I wasn't taking part, so I was on the bench, and uh, we scraped through basically, which took us through to the Belgium game, didn't it? Then David scored this incredible goal, which introduced him because he was sat next to me on the bench for ages. You know, I, I was thinking I might get on. But Bobby put David Platt on, and uh, and David, you know, made the most of it. Gaza's little chip through, and that moment of ecstasy that it fed back into the UK, didn't it? And, yeah. and we we could celebrate, and uh, it, it was a massive moment. I, I played in the Cameroon game. I came on as a as a sub. We were having issues on the field. We couldn't deal with them. Their strength, their running capacity. So I came on to that game and we turned it round. Gary Lineker scored a couple of penalties and uh, uh, and we went through um, against Cameroon. I was playing sort of right wing back, you know, and I'd had a good game. I think I got sort of good reviews. And, you know, when I came on, the game changed. You know, we 1-0 <laughs> down, you know, against, uh, against West Germany. Uh, again, I really have good influence on games that I don't get a touch in <laughs> because I hadn't touched it and Gary Lineker scored the goal. This is right. And now it's Parker. Well, we're appealing for offside. The Germans and they're in trouble. Alcantara couldn't do it. Lineker probably could. And England have equalised. It's Gary Lineker. The ace marksman keeps England in the World Cup. With just 10 minutes to go, the German defence got itself into a terrible tangle and how they were made to pay. It's a long ball by Paul Parker. Kohler and Augenthaler are in a mess. Lineker picks his spot with a beautiful left footer across the goalkeeper. It's 1-1. Were you taking a penalty at any point? Did you know? Well, I'd taken the first five penalty takers, let's say. They were still on the pitch. Um, yeah. They were still on the field when the penalties came to to be taken. So Bobby had looked at me and he nodded to me. So I was prepared and ready to go. Uh, and I'd taken penalties at Everton. I had a good yeah. record at Everton. I think 28 out of 32 or something like that. Uh, but I hadn't taken penalties for a while. So I was actually there thinking, this could be me next after Chris Waddle. This could How are you to know? Uh, and, you know, how do you deal with that? Mentally, yeah. I didn't know. You know, you're, sta- you're standing in the semi-final of the World Cup on the halfway line with your teammates, and the Germans and Franz Beckenbauer are just to your left, and, and Peter Shelton's up there for us. The crowd, I think, it was eighty odd thousand, but you know, worldwide, it's 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 a it's a big, big, big pressure. And you know, I, I never got to see if I would have been the hero or villain, yeah. because you know, Chris missed. Um, uh, after after Stuart and uh, it was all over. It was a, a kind of surreal moment. You don't know what to feel. Yeah. Obviously, they're running around ecstatic. We're sort of consoling each other. Oh, just a huge moment. You know, if you look back and you get to a World Cup final, I mean, you're going to be 
sort of remembered forever. I, I know some people remember that I played in a World Cup semi-final. Others probably wouldn't. You get to a final, everybody's going to know. Yeah. Uh, win it. My goodness, you know, in the modern day, it's, it'd just be, yeah. uh, it'd, it'd be incredible. Do you remember Gaza crying, though? Did you clock that happening yeah. when you were on the pitch, when he got uh, booked? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Paul was... Gaza was always, you know, on the edge, you know, yeah. and... Um, mm. You know, you're looking around. I mean, I I was always consider consider myself a, a quite a, a quiet, introverted kind of footballer, just looking around, absorbing it, but hugely disappointed. You know, we got back into the dressing room. There's nothing could be done about it. You know, we were going to hang around Italy to play in the third and fourth playoff, but the, the opportunity had gone. We'd missed that that moment that. Yeah. Could have changed all of our lives, um, oh. but it'd been such a, a positive, such a positive campaign in so many ways. What we did realise when we got back to Luton after the third and fourth uh, playoff game that it had really, really meant something to the to the English public. Yeah, you know, and the two hundred thousand people who turned up at Luton Airport uh, was a sight to behold. And you know, Gaza was it was at his best. Um, doing all sorts of things on the top of the bus, and I always think it's a funny. It was a funny feeling when that little bus trip from Luton Airport back to the hotel, where the cars were waiting to take us to our various homes around the UK, and the crowds had gone, and you were sat in the back of a car, on your own, driving up the M6 for a few hours, taking it all in. It was all over. Yeah. What did that feel like? How did it feel sad? Did it feel like proud? I don't know what to feel because you came home with. I came home with a medal. We were in the third and fourth playoff. Although we got beat against Italy, we, you both get bronze medals. Right, so there's there's not a a fourth grade of medal. Yeah. You, you both are going to get those medals, come win or lose. And um, so I could just look at that. And the, the you know the the, uh, the band that goes around your around your neck it's it was red white and, and green you know it was the uh, the Italian flag yeah. and and the and the medal and so you could keep looking at that to remind yourself what you've just done where you've yeah. just been because yeah. you're now all of a sudden pulling into the uh, service station or going to a little chef you know. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> Get a bag of chips, you know, just put me the little chip on your wee, you know, and uh, I'll get some chips. Do you want anything? Back in the day. <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden it's gone, you know. And yeah, we are fleeting. But you, you mentioned the crowds at Luton yeah. Airport. I, I mean, would, did you have any idea there would be crowds? Because that's not something that's really no. happened, uh, had happened before. Did, the first you knew of those crowds was when you arrived. Yeah, yeah, wow. literally. And when we knew there quite a lot, around, you know, Luton Airport as you come down and the wind down towards the town, um, you know, the crowd's going to stop now. It never stopped. The crowd never <laughs> stopped all into the city centre or the town oh, centre wow. in Luton. And people yeah. from windows on roofs. on. And I, I'm a great believer that it changed the modern game in England. Yeah. And it changed the mood of the, the country. You know, the Premier League was invented off the back of what happened on a regeneration, a re-energising of that effort that six weeks in Italy the summer of 90 that yeah. changed it the second summer of love well if, <laughs> if Italian 90 kind of reinvented football mm. what did Euro 92 do 
<laughs> I'll tell you what. Well, well, Bobby had left, and Graham, you know, uh, Graham was a lovely, a lovely guy, but he never picked me, honestly. He picked me in mm. the end. In the April prior to that, I hadn't been in any squads. April 1992. And I was playing at Marseille. You'd never played for him? I hadn't played for him prior to wow. that. And I was at Marseille with Chris Waddle. We were winning the French League. Chris didn't make it to the squad. Yeah. Right? He was playing up front with Papa, right? <laughs> he didn't make it to the squad. <laughs> Chris Waddle was unbelievable at Marseille. Yeah. And he couldn't get in the England team. Mad. So I went to play in, in one game that Graham Taylor picked me for, which was in the country that now doesn't exist, you know, that CIS thing. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I've got a cap with CIS on it. <laughs> right? There's not many of them about, I'll no, tell you. Down your sofa. And, and uh, so I, exactly. Uh, so I got, I, I, I scored in it. A brilliant ball from Nigel Clough in, Me in, in uh, Moscow. And, and the crowd was just soldiers. That's all it was in the crowd. We, we drew 2-2. And bizarrely, in history as it shows, Gary Lineker scored 48 goals, I think it was, for England. And Gary Lineker and I scored our first and last goals both in the same game, or in the same games. Our first ones were against uh, Republic of Ireland in 1985. 2-1 win at Wembley crowd about 27,000 that's how popular it was in those days <laughs> a midweek Wednesday night and uh, Gary scores his first uh, his first goal I score my first goal a 2-1 win then we both score again in the CIS game funnily enough just before the 1992 European yeah. Championships and um, Gary had scored 48 and I'd scored four in the meanwhile. <laughs> right? And that's why he's the international superstar he is. You know what I mean? <laughs> so and, wait, uh, it, it, the England games were selling 25,000 tickets in yeah. the 80s. That's mad. Yeah, yeah crazy, yeah. It took the, um, the World Cup for it to improve, really. So you get to into Graham Taylor's squad. What was Graham Taylor like as a manager? What was he like? And Graham was he was he was different to to Bobby. You know, he he done well in his career at Watford and Villa and got the job, the dream job. I don't know. It was just different. I was maybe a little bit old yeah. school in in my thinking. Well, I, I tell you what, I found it difficult to see past Bobby Robson because you know, Bobby picked yeah. me. Graham picked me in the end, uh, and I thought there were a lot of good players that weren't being used mm. yeah. uh, in the squads that Graham was picking. You know, so. I, 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 I just had that feeling about it. Uh, he had a different vision of what an England team looked like compared yeah. to, I think, what I did. And, I, and, and Chris Waddle was a perfect example of that to me. You know, Chris was doing brilliant. We won the league down there in, in, uh, in Marseille. And Chris was one of our star players. Uh, and he wasn't nowhere near the England team. Yeah. I, just thought, I just thought the selections were could have been better. I think we had better players. And I think that's why 92 ended up as it was. You know, Gary Lineker never played again after he was pulled off against Sweden. Yeah. Um, were you on the bench at that point? Or what were you in I played the first two games. I started, you know, from not going in any being in any squad. Then I was went to the CIS game, then I was in the squad. And I started the game against Denmark, right? I started the game. Central midfield I was playing, but I I, I was starting as the number eight, England's number eight. And it was the first tournament I'd ever been to with my name on the back. <laughs> and that's what I remember. You know, it was the first time we were getting names on shirts. 
so I was I was playing uh, in central midfield that first game. We drew. Obviously, Denmark went on to win it. Then we played against France, and I was playing up against my French colleagues, Basile Boli, Didier Deschamps, oh, Jean-Pierre yeah. Papin. They were all yeah. playing for France. And I started that game. We drew. So the, we drew the first two games. Then in the third game, I was left out. And, um, and Gary was taken off. I was completely left out. So uh, we lost 2-1. And, you know, we, we went back home. It was just... It just didn't. It just wasn't. Didn't feel right. It wasn't, wasn't right. the same. Were you there when Basil Bowley headbutted Stuart Pearce? Yeah, I was playing. I was playing. And were you? But I knew Basil. I'd just been playing with him at Marseille. Right? I just yeah. played that season. You know, he was a tough cookie. <laughs> and because Stuart left his foot in, you know, we know what Stuart Pearce's game is. Yeah. Um, talented but physical player. And Basil Bowley did what he did. You know, again, Basil should have been sent off if it had been seen. It would have been sent off and. Maybe would have won that won that game, but we drew it. It wasn't a memorable one at all. The, the Euro, European Championship. Yeah, I think to have two World Cups that are major tournaments makes up for two European Championships that are a bit underwhelming. Four major tournaments is must be very few players have gone to that. Yeah, I do when I look at it. You know, from from 80, 86, 88, 90, 92, Yeah, I was there at the moment. You know, and. I, it's great life experiences never made anything else and do you know what I do find I think particularly that 90 to go back to 90 was an amazing achievement by the England squad because since 1985 all of our players hadn't played against the best in Europe you know we'd been out yeah. of Europe we weren't playing in the yeah. European Cup we weren't playing in the UEFA Cup we weren't playing in the Cup Winners Cup we weren't playing any European football and Bobby Robson took us to the semi-final of the World Cup on a basis of players really playing in their own backyard. Yeah. And, um, which shows you the mentality that he brought into the squad of players, you know, and I think it's, it's one of those things I think is just not uh, talked about or appreciated about enough that we were not uh, coming up against your Real Madrid, your Inter Milan, your, all your great teams in competitive competition, which brings the, up the level of the player. And, uh, you know, I, I think that squad deserves a pat on the back for that. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've begun this chat by talking about medals. And, you know, you got your medal at Italia 90. You went, then come back. You rejoined Rangers in 92. You won the league another five times. I mean, your medal hall is astounding. Do you look back at that collection of medals and think, wow, what a career? Yeah, I do. Look at, I look back on it and the achievement of winning 11 league titles. You know, because I won one at Burnley. That's where it started. Very few people that can claim that, presumably. Yeah, I mean, if you play for Man United, you've got more than that. You know, yeah. through the Ferguson years. Not many yeah. will have done that. And, and it's the great satisfaction. I, I didn't just play. I didn't just go back to tournaments. I won things. You know, I, I played in four FA Cup finals. I lost three. <laughs> <laughs> lost three. Won the first one, then lost three. You know, and I've scored, I've scored in the European Cup winners final um, in Rotterdam. I'd scored in the, in, for Everton against Bayern Munich in the semi-final. This took us through to that final in Rotterdam, the European Cup Winners' Cup, in 85. So I'd scored in the semi-final, probably the goal that's most remembered by Everton uh, fans to this day. Uh, and every birthday that I have, I get a, you know, a lot of love from the, the, the support, uh, supporters of Everton, the fan base, uh, on that goal being one of their, their great memories. So it was just a collection of medals that I ended up with, really. It's an amazing yeah. career. 
I was either extreme, extremely lucky or very good. You know? <laughs> Oh, they're not mutually exclusive. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, which kind of leads us to our final question. We ask this of all our guests. If you could go back, usually we say 1990, but if you could go back to the 1st of January, 1980, and do it all over again, would you? And maybe what would you change? Um, the one thing that was disappointing to me, okay, and I'm, I'm looking at uh, this from uh, an Evertonian Everton's eyes, an Everton fan's eyes, an Everton player. It was, you know, the bad timing of what happened in um, the Heysel disaster and the effect that that had on football. Yeah. Uh, and English football. <clears throat> that we were out of Europe for so long. If I could change that and that Everton team could have gone on to see how good it was because everyone talks about the potential of that team that, almost won the treble in 1985. Uh, there's a great film, I, I don't know if you've seen yeah, it, the, the Everton Howard's Way film. Yeah. Um, which shows uh, the qualities of that team and the change in the club. <clears throat> that were, it, it stopped a little bit because we weren't uh, in the European Cup any longer and, and we tried to keep it going, but we couldn't. So that's the only thing that I would change. I wish we'd have gone and done that. The other thing that I would have liked to have done, I would like to have stayed... Um, abroad for longer. I was only at Marseille for the year. Uh, I, I loved it playing abroad, and uh, uh, I can see the attraction for people, yeah. you know, um, going abroad. Now I like to see it nowadays, you know, with the young players going abroad to cultural changes, language changes. Uh, I think it's a good thing. I really do. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So, would you? you the answer is yes. You'd like another go? Uh, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't change anything because I love Burnley. I loved Everton. I love Rangers. I loved Marseille. I loved going back to Rangers. I, I just didn't like the retirement part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor Stephen, thank you very much. It can be my pleasure. And let's do it again sometime. That was Trevor Stephen. Absolutely loved that. Now, before we get to the quiz, a quick reminder. If you want to be in with a chance to take part in the Euro 96 Championship Manager 97-98 tournament next month, then head over to patreon.com, www.patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin. Sign up before the end of May to be entered into the draw. You'll also be eligible for the new merchandise. That is three bits of QK goodies coming your way soon, as well as all the other bonus and live Zoom episodes, including... Chapter by chapter, Steve Bruce read-through with Ivo Graham. Quickly Kevin Film Club episodes, our most recent Quickly Kevin Fan Club only exclusive, which was a deep dive into WWF, which Chris made us do, and I'm annoyed to say has gone down very well. And extra 15 minutes exclusive bonus content from the episode you've just listened to and every episode you have listened to in the last year or so. Now, do that. And uh, you could be in with a chance to take part in our Euro 96 Championship Manager tournament with us playing against you. Plus, we have some huge Euro 2020, 2021, whatever you want to call it, QK announcements coming next week. And you will be first in line for some bonus stuff there as well. Anyway. And now, in an attempt to stop his constant defeats in the quiz, Chris will be hosting this week's. Over to you, Chris. 
Okay, do you know what? I'm going to take on Quizmaster duties right now, and I'm picking out one of the most iconic games of Trevor Stevens' career, and not just Trevor Stevens' career, one of the most iconic England games. I want to take you back to the 22nd of June, 1986. Argentina versus England in the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Great. Azteca Stadium, Mexico City. 114,000 people in attendance, and we were robbed. But who was in the starting lineup? Who wants to go first? Yeah. Okay. Do you want to go first, Michael? Yeah. Uh, Diego Maradona. Yeah. Correct. Schiltz. Correct. Two captains named first. Was Schiltz the captain? Yeah. Yeah, He's wearing the armband, isn't he? When he sees it in that picture. Rubbish. But why was he the captain? I was Brian Robson injured, as per usual. Yeah. Well, that's good, because he would have been one of my guesses. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but it's, um, why are they giving it to Shilton? He's got other leaders in that man. team. Madness. Yeah. You, like who, Chris? Well, I mean, you have to <laughs> tell you when you name him. Uh, Trevor Stephen. Correct. Gary Lineker. Correct. Are we going to see any showboating and naming of an Argentinian? I reckon I could do four or five Argentinians. Oh, really? I think I'd struggle beyond one. But... I'd be namely naming the older members of the 1990s squad. Yeah, and and I I could name I think probably two more, but only by surname. Um, P. Uh, have we said P. Beasley? No, no, P. Beasley. Correct. Steve Hodge, obviously. Of course, he's there, and he's on the pitch at full time for the shirt swap. Of course, he is. <laughs> um, Terry Butcher. Yeah, I mean, he's got to be captain before Shields, for God's sake. What are you now, doing, Bobby? Um, I'm remembering now people that were beaten in the <laughs> in the run yes. from Maradona. Yeah, that's what I was doing. Peter well. Reid was uh, one of the players. Correct. Correct. That was correct. my next one. Uh, I think Gary Stevens would have been first choice oh, yeah, right he'd back. Have been first choice right back. Correct. Have we had Terry Butcher? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So I think that's all but one of the players that were beaten. But I think he was a rare player. So I'm going to save that. Um, but I think I think this player came on. But I know they, they were on the pitch because they almost set up the equaliser. John Barnes. Came on for Trevor Stephen yeah. in the 74th yeah. minute. Okay, so I'll go with Terry Fennick because I, I think he was... Correct. Yeah, he was one of the players that was. And uh, that's. Oh no, there's one more. There's one more England player that hasn't been named. Not the whole. That's not the whole England team, is it? Oh no, it's not. There's a couple. Sorry. Yeah. So what? What, what players are we miss? What position? Sorry. For oh, come on, Michael. Third time lucky. I think you're missing a defender and a massive name in midfield. Then Glenn Hoddle. Correct. Right. The Argentinian goalkeeper would have been Neri Pompido. Correct. Damn it. Um, Burachaga. Ay, fucker. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, he scored the winner in the final, didn't he? I think there's an Argentinian called Sergio Batista. Ah, oh, you fucker. <laughs> that, was my, that was my last roll, deep pool. Yeah, is correct. it correct? Yeah, correct. So uh, I think um, are you missing a left back? Are you missing the left back? 
the England left back. Yeah. Uh, I, d- I don't think I've got any other players. Okay. Um, you could go. You could have a guess at the England left back, I suppose. Uh, Is it too early for who I'm thinking of? No, I don't. I think. Uh, do you want a clue? No, no Chris. No, no, that's not, that's not <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, Chris Waddle. Incorrect. Right. Is there someone called Brown who plays for Argentina? Yes. Fucking hell. <laughs> but, I mean, what are we doing? Do you, are we going to say you need the first name? No, I think surname's fine. I can, fine. I can... Are you called George? Not no, a million called... miles away. John. Jose. 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 If it's not Jose, it's got to be Jose. Jose Luis Brown. Um, yeah, I've, I've, got, I've got nothing. I'm going to have to... I'm gonna have to bow out with a whimper. Um, can I have a guess at that fullback, even yeah. though it's over? <sighs> Viv Anderson? No, I'll give you a clue. Oh, he was. Pl- oh, 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 I'm out. Anyway. No, go for it, Michael. Uh, Kenny Sampson. Correct. Oh, who else was on the bench for England? So on the bench, got Waddle and Barnes. So is it just two on the what bench? A bench? What a bench? Argentina only named one player on the bench. Is that just the player they're bringing off the bench? If you've only got two subs, it's mad to pick two wingers unless you really yeah. believe that you're lacking width. Because you're one injury away there from not covering yourself. Yeah, you, you've got to have a defender. Always have it. Because any other outfield player, I feel like you can slot them into position, but you can't put an attacker in maybe, any of the maybe, defensive positions. Could Peter Reid have gone in at centre-back? I don't know enough about 80s football. Um, well, I, let's let's end then with the 1986 England World Cup song. Which is? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Is it? um... We've got the whole world at our feet. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Friday for Patreon listeners and Monday for everyone else. Until then, Robbie Slater, see you later. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, 
you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.